Hello, I'm Jordan Sorokin. I'm Erica Senor. I'm Nick Weiler. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Greg Miller, a science journalist who got his PhD in neuroscience here at Stanford, then studied science communication at UC Santa Cruz. Greg spent 11 years as a reporter for Science Magazine and is now a senior writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us today, Greg. Glad to be here. So, Greg, we uh, have here your favorite cocktail. Can you tell us what it is and how you made it? Well, so what we have today is a Campari and Soda, and I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite cocktail, but lately I've been drinking a lot of cocktails kind of like this because the weather's been hot and uh, it's just super refreshing. Campari is a, an Italian bitter. There are like hundreds of these things out there. Campari is probably the most famous, but there are lots of them and, the, and they're made from roots and herbs and citrus rinds and all kinds of crazy stuff. And each one is a little bit different and uh, they're super versatile too. Like this is the most refreshing form where you just take a shot of Campari, maybe a little more, and uh, the juice of a lime, and top it off with some club soda or seltzer water, whatever you've got, and uh, you're on your way to a good time. <laughs> is it um, is it medicinal in some way? Yeah, I like to think so. <laughs> good for what ails you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cheers. Shall I try it? Cheers, cheers. Okay. Um, Nick, yeah, do you want to... Yeah, that is good. That is refreshing. Do you guys like... Like, a lot of people don't like it because it's, no, it's, it's pretty delicious. bitter. It is a bit delicious. bitter, but it's yeah. pretty... It's still really good. Mm. So Aperol is the one that, that people say is the gateway drug to right. bitters because it's it's not quite as bitter. It's a little more fruity than this, but mm-hmm. but kind of similar. Yeah, mm. I would I would probably put, like, a dash of grenadine for myself, but otherwise it's pretty, pretty tasty. No, it's good. I like it a lot. Yeah. So you won this uh, National Academy's Award last year for science communication for a piece in science about drone warfare. It's pretty pretty great. Uh, congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah, it was a huge honor. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the reporting for that piece, sort of where it came yeah. from and, and how you went about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, th- there were four pieces that won the award, but I think the award really was for a special issue that we did at Science on Human Conflict that looked at um, across the board what science has to tell us about the evolutionary roots of uh, human conflict, uh, things like social network analysis to break down terrorist groups to, you know, the neuroscience and psychology of conflict. So the award really wasn't for me personally. It was for this whole big team effort. And my small part of it was this article on drones. And I guess the what, what was really the interesting question for me there was this issue of psychological distance. Hmm. Um, a lot of people would say, um, you know, if you think about having to kill someone, it's really abhorrent, but the thought of killing someone with your own hands, like strangling them or stabbing them to death with a knife, is even more kind of viscerally repulsive than, say, shooting them with a gun. Or and then you know to take another step back, dropping a bomb that kills people is is a little bit even more removed. And on one hand, the drone warfare seems like it's even another step in that direction because people are, uh, you know, these. People are in an underground bunker in Nevada or something operating a, a, a drone with a joystick and killing people literally on the other side of the planet. So mm-hmm. the distance, the physical distance is greater than it's ever been. But in another sense, the psychological distance isn't necessarily greater because these guys have incredible cameras on, on the aircraft and they can see what's going on on the ground. So in some cases, they'll be following 
the target for days or even weeks, and they'll see, you know, this guy goes off and plots, you know, some some bombing, but then he comes home and plays with his kids in the yard, and they see that, mm. and then they see the aftermath after the the missile hits. They see the same kids running around frantically, and and so that could be, it seems, you know, kind of intense. And so that was that was kind of the question driving my interest in this. Everyone says, you know, the psychological distance is great with drone warfare, and that makes it easier to go to war, but in this other sense, I thought maybe it's not. Hmm. So in the article, you you cited this um, study conducted by the Air Force um, that showed that only 4% of drone operators were at risk for developing post-traumatic stress disorder compared to the estimated 12 to 14% of veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. So it sounds like even though you thought maybe the psychological impact would be less, there's still a less of a strain compared to hand-to-hand combat. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's consist that idea is consistent with with that study. Mm-hmm. So my article came out in 2012, and I did the reporting, you know, a few months before it came out. And at the time, that was I think the only study I was able to find on drone operators specifically. But I don't know that it's it's definitive. There there was another mm-hmm. study last year that came out and suggested that the rates are actually the same in. I think this that one compared drone operators to um, fighter jet pilots and found similar rates of, of PTSD. So I think the jury's kind of still out on mm-hmm. on that original question that I that I tried to ask. Mm-hmm. So it kind of reminds me of the famous thought experiment where you're on the bridge and there's you know the train coming and then yeah. you pull the yeah, lever. Yeah, the trolley problems. Yeah, yeah the exactly, trolley problem. Right. Yeah. So this is uh, you know the the classic problem that moral philosophers and now cognitive neuroscientists use to study morality. And the idea is you have a runaway trolley coming down a track, and it's going to hit five people and kill them all unless you decide to flip a switch that'll divert the trolley onto a track with one person. And so this kind of dilemma has been put to people again and again and again in all kinds of different cultures. And most people will choose the utilitarian option, which is to sacrifice the one person to save five. But then if you tweak it a little bit and make it so that instead of flipping a switch, you have to push a person off a bridge to stop the trolley, you know, sacrifice that one person to save five. The math is exactly the same, but far, far fewer people are willing to actually physically push the person to, you know, to his death, Mm -hmm. even though it saves five. Yeah, Yeah. it's really dramatic. I think in the first case, it's like nine out of 10 would pull the lever. Mm -hmm. And in the second case, only like one out of 10 Mm -hmm. would push the guy. Yeah, so we have a very different cognitive and sort of emotional reaction depending on how we actually are implicated, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So other than that ex- example, though, is there much research being done on this? There's, I think there's not a ton of research. If if I remember correctly, there there were some studies in Vietnam that looked at soldiers who'd actually killed in combat had higher prevalence of post-traumatic stress and, and other disorders when they when they came back and I, there's a little bit there's a there's a book called on killing that was written by a former army ranger i i want to say i'm not sure about that but he interviewed um hundreds of people who'd killed in combat and based on those interviews and other research came to the conclusion you know that this this idea of psychological distance is really important and killing the closer you are the more sort of physically you are involved in killing the person, the more psychologically powerful it is. Mm -hmm. How do you think stories and studies such as this and other related ones that you just mentioned might spill over into both the military field or into science or into philosophy, the study of morality? How do you think this might affect 
those yeah, fields in the future. Yeah, they're kind of, I mean, like Erica said, it is kind of almost like a, a real world trolley problem. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's something we should, that's not really taken into consideration when we think about the cost of going to war. The psychological cost is, is never really a consideration up front, but we mm -hmm. deal with it again and again and again after every conflict. I was just curious, sort of, if you, in doing this article, you had any ideas about the impacts on on society of the sort of increasing use of drones, and sort of you, you talked a little bit about the effects on the individual, um, the person who's maybe piloting the drone. But did you think at all about whether it makes it easier for those of us who aren't piloting the drone to feel less implicated? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did think about that. But there's, I mean, as hard as it was to find research on the impacts on drone pilots, it's even harder to find, you know, research on the the impact of, of us on society, the people who authorize this. Yeah. And the other, I mean, the other important issue is the effect of drone strikes on the people being bombed. I mean, mm -hmm. what is, is, is there a, a psychological difference to be, you know, to being bombed and targeted by robots from above versus having invaders, you know, that you can see come into your town and, mm -hmm. and kill your you know, family and friends. Yeah. We don't have any really good idea about that. No, there are some efforts to document some of the the aftermath on on the ground, but because um, these are in pretty remote parts of the world and you know, I guess relatively dangerous and inaccessible parts of the world, there's not a lot of good. Uh, there's not a whole lot of information coming out. So, what do you think are the future of of drones after writing this article? Do you see any significant spillover into non-military use? Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, we do see it all all around. Drones mm -hmm. are being used. I mean, for everything, I went went online the other day and saw a, a really captivating video of my neighborhood that someone had shot with a mm. with a drone. <laughs> and on one hand, it's, it's like, wow, that's really cool. And then on the other hand, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> and you see yourself in the window. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, right. So yeah, exactly. So I watched it again. I was like, you know, making sure he wasn't hovering outside my window. Yeah. <laughs> when did you take this? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Is that the day I? <laughs> Well, you were talking about sort of the impacts on people's attitudes you know, towards us in, in different remote parts of the world. One of the other things that I wanted to ask about was that you, you had this big trip that you took in, it was 2004, 2005, I think, to, to look at mental health care um, in different parts of yeah. South Asia. Yeah. So I had, um, yeah, this is about 10 years ago, but I had a fellowship from the Carter Center, which is the NGO that was started by President Carter and his wife Rosalind after after he left office, and they're probably best known for their work in election monitoring and some of the work they do with infectious disease eradication. But uh, one of their program areas is mental health, and they have a fellowship program for journalists. It's a really amazing program, and I mean to make a long story short, they they gave me some money that I could use to go do some reporting on mental health in, in developing countries. So Was that your proposal or was that? Yeah. Yeah. I proposed it. Um, and I proposed it for a couple of reasons. I, I was, I mean, honestly, I, I just kind of found the fellowships one day when I was poking around looking for some new project to tackle. Um, and I got to thinking about it. There had been at the time a editorial, I think in science, arguing that mental health is a, is a huge and hugely neglected issue in global health based on the argument that, you know, if you just look at mortality, obviously infectious disease like HIV and malaria, tuberculosis kill far more people than mental illness does. But if you start to add up the years lived with disability and use that as a metric of, of human suffering and 
uh, lost economic productivity, then mental illnesses like depression, anxiety, alcohol abuse, you know, substance abuse uh, are, are right up there in, in the leading causes worldwide of disability. And yet, mm. um, you know, nobody really writes about it. Nobody um, at the time really was doing too much about it. So it seemed like a neglected area and something that could use a little light. Yeah, definitely. Are those statistics true for the states as well, both nationally and, and yeah. international? Yeah. Hmm. So, so what did you find when you went to these three countries? Did, was there a yeah. difference in how mental illness was being treated? Yeah, I went to these three places for kind of different reasons, for specific but different reasons. So mm-hmm. in Sri Lanka, it just happened that um, that was the year the year of my fellowship was the year of the tsunami in December. Mm. And it was dev- it devastated the eastern part of Sri Lanka. And there was a huge outpouring of aid uh, specifically for the mental health in, of the survivors. And I think partly because it happened over Christmas when a lot of people were home with their families and you turn on TV and you see these awful images of, you know, children being swept away from their mothers. And, you know, in the West, we have this tendency to assume that when something like that happens, PTSD inevitably follows. Mm-hmm. And so there was this huge like outpouring of, of support financially. And then hundreds, literally hundreds of groups came into this area of Sri Lanka and set up camp. Some of them were doing evidence-based treatments for uh, traumatic stress. Other, you know, the Scientologists were there. There were all kinds of groups doing all kinds of things. And it was really chaotic and not very productive. And that's kind of what I wanted to go see. And mm-hmm. kind of get into the culture clash that, you know, we in the West have ideas about how people respond to a traumatic experience like that, that maybe aren't the way people in other parts of the world actually do respond. So that was, that was kind of the gist of that article. Mm -hmm. So how were they responding? Um, They were, well, they were remarkably resilient. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that was the the thing that I came away from that is just that people are remarkably resilient. And I think they appreciated a lot of the effort that was being made on their behalf, but they also didn't by and large seem to think that it was very helpful. Since then, I don't know if you know, but has that help, like the help that we've been trying to give that hasn't been helpful on their perspective has that changed or do we still try to employ the same yeah yeah so so yeah that's really interesting because one one thing i did in in 2012 i did a follow-up article i went to Aceh, indonesia which was the other area that was even more devastated than than sri lanka in in the tsunami and what happened in in both places um but particularly in in Aceh was some people who were there from the World Health Organization kind of had the foresight to realize like, okay, this is a pattern that's repeating itself over and over where we have a traumatic, you know, natural disaster or some sort of trauma. We send in all this aid, the initial aid money runs out and all these groups pack up and go home and the people there are right back where they started. And in Aceh, where they started was zero. There was one pretty dismal mental hospital in Banda Aceh, which is the capital, and then for, you know, that was it for a province of, I think, 5 million people. Mm-hmm. And so what they've tried to do since then, and what I went back to report on, was is to establish a, a community mental health program that basically says, you know what, we're never going to have enough psychiatrists in a place like Aceh, Indonesia, to take care of all the people who could use some help. So we're going to train some general practitioners, give them a little extra psychiatry training. We're going to train a, a whole um, bunch of nurses who are already out there working in the communities because they actually have a decent community health program it's just there's no mental health training so they're they're trying to train the nurses and then the nurses in turn train people in the communities just mm. actual you know ordinary villagers to do 
sort of mental health triage. I mean, they're not really doing, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, but they're they're trained enough that they can realize when so, recognize when someone in their community is having trouble doing the stuff that people in that community do and either get them to come to the community health center and see a doctor or help them resolve sort of social issues like there's a lot of stigma there against mental illness and so you know it just compounds because if somebody you know somebody's son has schizophrenia then maybe none of the other villagers will give that person work and maybe they'll think the whole family is kind of cursed and stay away from them and then that just makes the you know the situation for that family even worse and so they'll try to resolve kind of situations like that that don't involve a lot of technical expertise but still are are things that can be remedied Mm -hmm. without it. And did that approach have a lot of success? Well, it it remains to be seen. It's just getting off the ground, and you know, but it but it's it's an idea that's really gaining a lot of support. Um, NIH started a new program in global mental health a few years ago, and they've been pushing this idea. And I think more and more people are are coming to the consensus that mental health is actually a problem worth addressing in developing countries, and that it's going to have to be done with this sort of task shifting approach of you know, shifting a lot of the work that's traditionally been done by psychiatrists onto less specialized people. Mm-hmm. You know, the the resources you have, making the most of the resources you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as part of that trip, you also went to India and China. Can you talk a little bit about uh, yeah. what it was like in those countries? Yeah. So this was, you know, 10 years ago. But uh, the reason I went to China, China is really interesting because it has one of the highest uh, suicide rates in the world, mm-hmm. but also one of the lowest reported rates of, of depression. And hmm. that kind of flies in the face of how we think about things in the West, which is that mental illness in general and depression in particular are, are the biggest risk factors for suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I what I came away from that article with was an understanding that maybe it's a difference in how people talk about their mental angst, anxiety, uh, depression, like they're, they have, they, they would rarely say I'm feeling depressed. They would, you know, they, they would come to the doctor and complain of other symptoms, like not being able to sleep and, Mm. um, more bodily complaints. And that's just how they express it there because, Mm. yeah. Mm. Do you think that exacerbates the situation? Because if they're not expressing themselves, how might they find help or treatment? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, but I also think that the psychiatrists there know, you know, at least the good ones kind of recognize what's going on mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. recognize that, OK, maybe this person's complaining of can't sleep and belly aches, but they might still benefit from an mm-hmm. antidepressant drug. I mean, I wonder if, if it has to do with our cultures sort of being steeped in psychiatry, you know, that we've it's something yeah. that people have thought about a lot, and yeah. you know, con- people are constantly asking themselves well, yeah. these self-absorbed yeah, questions. Yeah, Americans were always like, so, "Yeah, am <laughs> I am I happy? Am I you know?" Yeah. Like we're always psychoanalyzing ourselves, and yeah, I think that's that's part of it. Yeah, um, it's weird though, because in the United States, that is true, but mental illness is still really stigmatized. I mean, right. I feel like, especially you know, things like depression and, and I guess schizophrenia. Like, there's almost like mental illness anxiety on top of the original disorder. Yeah. People don't really want to admit it or talk about yeah. it. So, I mean, it's it's a problem because I think on one hand, it's kind of trivialized because everyone says they're depressed. And, right. you know, you it's read those studies around. where 30% of Americans are on antidepressants or maybe it's more yeah. than that, actually. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, people who really are in the grips of major depression have a hard time getting help. And we've only had mental health parity very recently mm-hmm. in this country to treat, you know, for, for insurers to reimburse for mental health services on the same basis that they do for, mm. you know, other bodily uh, 
illnesses. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I've actually been reading about is that a similar approach to what you were describing it, with sort of bringing community members into the process of treating or at least understanding issues in mental health has been, you know, has been proposed here too, you know, that it's it's often hard to to identify people who are having real problems because yeah. they don't necessarily have the, you know, motivation or wherewithal to go seek treatment. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it seems like a really interesting approach to make, you know, everyone just more aware, but I guess it has the, the downside of making ourselves too aware. <laughs> <laughs> Did the project change sort of the way that you that you thought about about mental illness? I don't I don't know if it did. I I mean, I didn't have I don't know that I had any preconceived notions going into it. It definitely gave me an appreciation of how people with mental illness live in different parts of the world and how, you know, they receive different types of treatments in different parts of the world. So before I went before I went on this trip, I went to Johns Hopkins and uh went on psychiatry rounds there and saw the you know, saw the hospital, the inpatient ward. And it was, you know, it was nice. It was clean and brightly lit and the patients were hanging out, you know, just kind of watching TV, doing whatever. Seemed like maybe some of them were, were pretty sedated, but, you know, it was like a nice orderly clean place. Mm -hmm. And um, then when I went to, when I went to India, the reason I went to India was there's this longstanding idea and it's, it's a little bit controversial, I think, but that people with schizophrenia have better outcomes in developing countries than they do in, in rich countries. Mm -hmm. And so I went to, you know, sort of take a look at what some hospitals are, are doing there that, that might be related to this difference. And so one, one idea is that the reason for that might be that in, in poor countries, just by, you know, the virtue of the lack of alternatives, someone who has a serious illness is still probably living at home and integrated with their family and might even have to do some work to help support their family if they're if they're sort of trying to to scrape by. And so one of the one of the hospitals I went to in India sort of in, in acknowledgement of, of this and in acknowledgement that the social structure of the patient is actually an important component to their well being would only admit a patient to be an inpatient if a family member came and stayed with them. So they had um you know, uh, accommodations, let's say, hmm. for, for a family member. And, you know, it was a chaotic place. It was much busier than the ward at Hopkins and probably wasn't as clean. Um, people were running around. There were activities all day. They were doing kind of arts and crafts type stuff and making things that they could sell to make a little money and doing vocational training and going to therapy sessions and doing, all you know, all kinds of different things. It was, it was a, just a completely different feel than the you know than a western psychiatric ward and mm. i came away from that thinking if i ever um am unfortunate enough to have a psychotic break i think i'd rather be at that hospital in india it seemed a lot more fun and sort of natural mm. less medicalized mm. it seemed like it was yeah it, it sounds sort of like it was more holistic you know they were yeah. trying to deal with yeah. the whole person yeah. and find a place for yeah. them right did this change the way you went about reporting or the types of stories that you looked at or or was just sort of a, a break from from the regular, and then you went back. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't I don't know that it that it had. I mean, it, it certainly like look this this was definitely I, I would put this at the very top of the most my list of the most rewarding things that I've done mm -hmm. as a journalist, and you know the like probably above all the th things that I've done, the one area where I feel like maybe I've made some tiny bit of difference by by helping bring a little bit of attention to this neglected area. But in terms of has it changed my own life, I guess I would probably 
be lying if I said that it that it has, <laughs> or at least I need to have another uh, Campari soda and think, <laughs> think on it a little more. Uh, maybe you need to work on that. <laughs> so recently, you wrote an article about uh, do-it-yourself or so-called DIY electrical brain stimulation. Um, so when I first heard about this, I thought it was first like a really great way to kill yourself. Um, <laughs> but then after you reading your article and a few other articles that I read after you reading yours, no, now it seems more like you know those people who stick magnets on their head and then claim it, it'll cure their cancer. Like it just seems a little a little shammy to me, I guess. Um, so so before we get into into those details a little bit more, can you talk a little bit about what DIY brain simulation is all about and how it got started? Yeah, so the this the the form of it that I write about in this article is something called transcranial direct current stimulation, mm -hmm. and um, it it in its simplest form it involves a nine volt battery and two uh, sponges soaked in saline solution <laughs> uh, applied to the to the head. <laughs> um, it's not a lot of current, so people immediately think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest right. and electroconvulsive shock therapy. This is like a thousand times less less current. It doesn't mm -hmm. induce seizures or anything like that. Um, what it actually does do is pretty mysterious. <laughs> uh, mysterious in a way. Nobody actually know, knows nobody what it knows, does. Nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. Yeah. Mysterious is the nice way. What it? are the claims that have been made? Yeah. So, I mean, there is, and, and so this was the, you know, the interesting thing that I, I tried to capture in this article. There are sort of two types of, two, two groups of people who are very excited about this. On one hand, there are a, a small but arguably growing number of scientists who are looking into this as a potential treatment for depression, chronic pain, a whole host of other uh, conditions. The military, unsurprisingly, is interested in using it to improve training of fighter hmm. pilots and intelligence analysts and, and things like that. And I think over a thousand studies have been published, um, and most of them pretty small studies, most of them showing pretty modest effects. Mm -hmm. But um, it's been enough, and, and the media coverage of those studies has been largely pretty enthusiastic, and so that's been enough to inspire the second group of people who are these DIY people to take it on themselves to build these devices or, or buy the stuff off the internet and uh, try it out. Hmm. Did, did you try it out? No, no. no. <laughs> I'm a neuroscientist now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's, so there are a lot of papers on, um, you know, electroconvulsive therapy we talked about before. And um, last week we had um, an, anesthes an anesthesiologist, Boris Heifetz, on, and he talked a lot about deep brain stimulation. You, know, you open the brain, you stick an electrode into the brain, you, you know, do some stimulating. And that's been used for treating Parkinson's and depression and all, all, all sorts of other stuff. But as you mentioned before, these devices that these DIY people are using, it's very low current. Is there any research on whether or not this low dose is even having any effect? Like, it, is it even penetrating Pen the brain? Penetrating the skull. <laughs> penetrating yeah. the skull, getting yeah, into yeah, the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, supposedly there's, there's a guy... Um, the, that I talked to a biomedical engineer at City College, New York, who's done a lot of modeling, uh -huh. uh, computer modeling of, of the current flow. And yeah, it, it, it does penetrate the brain. If you're just using the two electrodes, it's kind of penetrating the entire brain or a uh -huh. large chunk of it. But yeah, the current's getting into the brain. It's probably not enough to trigger action potentials, but it probably is enough to depolarize or hyperpolarize neurons, mm -hmm. depending on the orientation, the whole geometry of the setup. Um, and, you know, there are enough studies out there that it does seem like you can get effects in the lab. 
mm-hmm. um, on self-report measures of mood and cognition, or, or not not even self-report on cognition, but you know you can you can improve. Uh, it looks like various aspects of cognition um, with a you know a thirty-minute session in the lab or something. The big question is whether it translates to the real world mm-hmm. at all. Right. So in, in the article you mentioned this one study where researchers have a hard time with placebo effect because even though it's a low amount of electrical stimulation, you still sort of feel a tingling. So they can't, they haven't yeah. figured out how to, a way to sort of replicate that in a placebo fashion. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. A, there's some disagreement about the best way to do that because you, yeah. you can kind of turn it on and off right at the beginning to give a little tingle uh-huh. and then uh, do it again at the end, but have it off all in between. But then there's, you know, there's sort of different philosophies yeah. on, on the best way to do that. I wonder if they just primed people beforehand. Like if they told one half of people, we're going to do this um, brain stimulation. And just as a warning, like, you know, we've had reports that it causes depression and it could lower your intelligence and then <laughs> right. do it and yeah, then exactly. test them. And if then, it's just yeah, yeah if it's, you just go in like thinking it's going to make you smarter. Then you might. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a, yeah, that's a great idea. Good mm. experiment. I mean, they're also like in a lot of these studies, the you know, another red flag is there are no negative controls. There's always like the thing that they set out to test, like memory. Right. Right. And they show that memory gets better, but they, they don't show that um, anything else doesn't get better. Uh-huh. So it's just like whatever you do, yeah. it gets better. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, to me is a suspicious sign. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any sense that like there's a there's a chance that it might be having an interesting effect on people? I mean, there's a lot of money going into this, right? From the military side anyway. There's- yeah, I don't know if it's a, a lot in, in in the grand scheme of things, but there's there's some money going into it. I mean, it is a really cheap, you know, compared to even drugs, this is cheap. Mm. It's um, not not a lot of fancy equipment, and so no, I mean, my my overall take is yeah, it's it's definitely worth looking into. I mean, we really could use better treatments for a lot of mental uh, illnesses. Uh, you know, the current drugs we have aren't particularly good. They have a lot of side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pharma is kind of dropping out of neuroscience R&D because it is so hard and so expensive mm. to bring drugs to, to market in, in that space. And so, yeah, I think it's absolutely worth looking into. I guess I'm just not I'm not convinced by the evidence so far. But I mean, that's that's kind of what drew me to this story was was that ambiguity in mm. it of, you know, the scientists, you know, the science kind of is where it is. So who gets to decide when the science is ready? Yeah. Like the scientists, most of them, right. even the scientists who are proponents of this would probably say it's not ready for mass consumption anyway. Uh-huh. But then the a lot of the people that I talked to said, mm-hmm. you know, it's I've looked at the research. You know, I can download these papers from, you know, the Internet. And I had a look and I think it's good enough. I'm going to do it. You can't, you know, it's my right. body. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to give it a try. Given the ambiguity, how do you approach like as a, on a writer's perspective, how do you approach these topics in general and this one specifically? Yeah, I mean, I I tried to just hear everyone out because that that was my job. I mean, I was I felt like it wasn't necessarily my job to tell people what to think about this. It mm-hmm. was to hear out the people who were interested in it and you know, describe their rationale and point out what I saw as maybe some you know, some some flaws or some caveats to to that rationale mm-hmm. and let our readers decide what what to make of it. Mm-hmm. How do you go about finding stories like this and you, you mentioned that like this is something that mm-hmm. drew you to this particular particular story but how do how do things sort of come across your writer's radar yeah in 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 lots of different ways i mean this one you know i think i 
these studies when they come up on TDCS, this brain stimulation, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this form of brain stimulation is mm -hmm. called TDCS. You know, they're off, they're increasingly in higher profile journals. In in the introduction or discussion of one of those papers, I saw something about people doing it themselves, just sort of mm -hmm. as a caveat at the end of the paper. And I thought, wow, I ought to look into that and talk to some of those people. And so, you know, that led me probably to Reddit and you know, YouTube, <laughs> say, a lot of other Reddit reputable sources. Well, I was going to ask you if there's a Reddit for like science writers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, oh, yeah. But there's also a Reddit for uh, DIY okay. brain stimulation. Yeah. Pinterest. And lots of other things. Yeah, yeah the Nootropics uh, subreddit. Right. Yeah. That's a fun yeah. one. Yeah. Um, so what percentage of the stuff that you write is stuff like this where you sort of find it yourself and how much is assigned to you? It's, I, th I think it's virtually 100% stuff I find myself. That's, oh. that's probably like the biggest part of my job is finding stuff. That's really cool. To write about. And do you just go to whoever you work for and you just tell them I have this interesting idea? Yeah. So I just have to pitch it to my editor, uh, mm. right? Try to try to convince them that it's a something we should do. Do you do your own editing as well or do you do? <laughs> if, the... if only. Yeah, that yeah. would be great. <laughs> Self-editing. Um, no, it's no, no. Perfect I, the way it is. It's perfect yeah, good right. this, this looks good to me. Let's just publish it. Um, yeah, no, no, no. I definitely work with editors. And it's sort of a more, I mean, that story, because it was in the magazine, has a, there's a more involved editing process, sort of more rounds of editing than the stuff that I write for the website, which has, which is also edited, but. It's just a much shorter turnaround for the web stuff. Mm -hmm. You mentioned sort of um, the you know, the the different you know the role that you take on here being you know you're you're being a reporter you know you're saying here's what people are doing here's what they're saying here's where the research is and you know putting it out there as a as a story. So I mean it's interesting sort of coming from where you come from as a you know PhD in neuroscience from Stanford. Do you do you feel like you have a a different approach to other journalists or is it something that you have to that you've made a you know a total transition to being to approaching these stories from from a different sort of point of view i don't know i mean i think i've been out long enough that i am sort of reverting to the to the real world i've been out of the the, the, the real world but away from the ivory tower long <laughs> enough that i'm becoming yeah. a normal citizen again yeah uh <laughs> No, but I think what what I learned in in my time here that's that's been the most valuable is is not necessarily the, you know, the knowledge of neuroscience because that's changed a lot in the what fifteen years since I was here. Um, it's it's more just the ability to think critically, and um, so I I like to think that I I bring that to my work, but in all other ways I try to approach it as just a ordinary uh, cu intellectually curious person. Mm -hmm. Do all of your um, the other writers that you work with or that are that you see do they all like their requirements have a PhD to work for science? Um, so it it wired definitely not um, at science. There was a lot more of that because it's a magazine for scientists. Right. And mm -hmm. The beats are much more specialized, and most of the people covering a beat have a background in that area. Not necessarily a PhD, but some mm -hmm. some people do. Okay. So when did you decide you wanted to leave academia for, for writing? When did I decide? Yeah. Um, I think it was sometime in the two years where none of my experiments were working. <laughs> um, it's yeah, a hard two years. Yeah, it was a rough two years. So like the first two years, everything went great. Like I had, I don't know, beginner's luck. I had a project. I got a paper. I went away to Woods Hole for the summer and did the neural systems and behavior class, which was absolutely the most fun thing that I did in um, 
in grad school and, you know, I just passed my qualifying exam. I was feeling like pretty good about things. And then I came home and really like literally nothing worked for two years. Wow. Um, and so, you know, these were like frustrating experiments that I won't bore you with, but it, it was, it was a hard time. And, and I found myself, you know, I, I, I would ask myself like, okay, if things turn around tomorrow and everything starts working again, is it all going to be worthwhile? And mm -hmm. after, you know, a while, the answer to that became no, like mm. I'm not, um, at least for me, the, the frustration and the tediousness was was not going to be compensated for by a paper in Nature or you know a big grant or a prestigious postdoc or what whatever. Like I needed to find some other outlet for my intellectual curiosity, which is kind of what drove me to grad school in the first place. Mm -hmm. Did you do any writing while you were in grad a graduate student? I did towards the end. Yeah, so towards the end, you know things started working again and I was determined at that point to, to sort of finish up, mm -hmm. but I realized I wanted to do something else. So I, st you know, I started teaching more and I started writing stories for the Stanford daily and the Stanford, um, you know, the med school has a news office that puts out press releases and, you know, the, the med school alumni magazine and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I did, that's kind of how I dipped my toes in it while I was still here. What was the sort of um, intellectual transition like, I mean, how how did you go from you know science uh, research research brain to writing brain? Because they seem yeah, like for in me, some I don't, very different. I don't things. think I ever like clicked into research brain to to be honest. Well, I mean, I did, but it wasn't hard to disengage from it. Like, I think my my temperament is much more suited to learning about a lot of things in less detail. That's just mm -hmm. like a more natural fit for my interests and personality. And so, this seemed like a, you know a pretty good match. Short attention span, I guess. <laughs> so, so as we mentioned before, you worked for science for a number of years, and now you're at Wired. Um, do you approach writing for these two outlets differently? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, they're totally different outlets. Yeah, uh, science is is a magazine for for scientists, and mm -hmm. Wired is you know a, a consumer magazine with a much bigger and broader audience of people who are interested, you know, are interested in technology and culture and a little bit of science, but science is, is, I would say, a pretty small part of, of what Wired's really about. Think mm. of it. So is it just the topics have changed, or have you actually changed the amount of detail, scientific detail you put into your articles? All of that. Yeah. So, I mean, at science, I looked at my job as very much covering a beat and making sure that I didn't miss anything important that was developing in neuroscience was my beat and, mm -hmm. you know, a few other things. And at Wired, it's much more, the focus is, is much more on finding interesting things, interesting ideas, people that will engage and entertain our readers. Mm -hmm. And entertain is actually a part of it. Like it, there's, it's not nearly as reverential towards science as Science, the magazine is. And it's been, I guess the biggest adjustment for me is to kind of, um, well, two things. One, to sort of back up and try to remind myself what people who don't have a PhD in neuroscience mm -hmm. know about neuroscience mm -hmm. and to write in a way that those people can understand and also to just have a little more fun with the writing and mm -hmm. not be so deadly serious yeah. and write something that's fun to read in, mm -hmm. in addition to being, you know, hopefully in, informative. Yeah. So it sounds like you have a lot more freedom at Wired. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. More creativity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All, all of that. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. One of the things that I've done at Wired that's been a lot of fun is I co-founded a blog on maps and map making. Huh. I've, I've always just loved maps. And this has kind of been an excuse to learn something about the history of 
cartography and how maps are made and how they're you know being made now there are all these really cool digital cartography tools being developed now so that almost anybody can make a, a really interesting map to support a social cause or a political cause or just a, or a business or anything mm. um and so yeah i've been spending a lot of time trying cool. to so let me get this right is. you're saying that working as a neuroscientist writer for science doesn't let you do that that's <laughs> right, right right yeah <laughs> that's that, that would be very surprising um, yeah, that that would have unless they're talking about the Alan Brain Atlas, oh, right? That's then, true. Yeah, yeah that's, that's actually, when you said map yeah, at yeah, first, yeah, yeah. I, imag- I immediately thought them. of like somatosensory map. It turns out there are other types of maps. Too much neuroscience. Too much neuroscience. So, what's your favorite map on there? Oh my god, that's so hard. A favorite map on there. Yeah, there you go. Well, we let's see. I'm trying to think of what I've what I've done recently. I'm working on something that's like really super cool, but. It's a little bit secret. Um, <laughs> uh, we recently did a, a buried treasure. <laughs> yeah, that's better than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so intrigued now. We we did one recently on uh, maps of California as an island. There's actually a collection here at Stanford. Um, they they just uh, were given a, a couple years ago a collection of 700 maps that depicted California as an island. There was uh, I think about two centuries in which all of Europe thought that California hmm. was, was in fact an island. Well, we kind of, we kind of behave that way too. Yeah. That's that right. makes it's kind of fun and interesting. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. How did we discover that it was not in fact an island? We moved here. We, yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Just more people came. And like, yeah. No, it basically just took someone. Like, you started asking the walking, locals. Like, walking across and realizing that, no, it's not separated by a strait. So there seems to be a lot of complaints that there is a lot of bad science writing out there, and I'm sure you've read examples of that. Do you think this is actually a real problem, and if so, how do we address this issue? Yeah, I I think there is a lot of bad science writing out there. There's a lot of good science writing out there. I guess I'm not sure what any any one person could do about it. I think I think scientists it's it's a lot easier to to criticize the science writing that's out there, and it's a lot harder to take the time to make sure a journalist understands what you're talking about and is mm-hmm. going to represent it fairly. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I would love to see, I've, I've tried to cultivate this, but it's it's been hard because scientists are busy people. But like, I would love to have 10 scientists, 20 scientists that I, I can, that are almost like on call that I can send them a paper and say, Hey, can you look at this and tell me if it's totally hyped, if it's, if it's bullshit, whatever, just help me put it in perspective, decide whether to cover it. And you know, things like that is, are, are such a valuable service to me as a journalist, but it's it's really hard to get scientists mm-hmm. to do that. And it's really hard, even if you get someone who's willing to do that, who can actually then talk to you in yeah. um, plain English. Right. Have you tried reaching out to graduate students at postdocs? Yeah, no, you know, that's, that. yeah, yeah, that's that's actually what I've been thinking lately, right. is mm-hmm. that that's what I should be doing because more. One, we have the time, and if we don't, yeah. we're more than willing to make time right. for that. <laughs> right. We're also the ones doing the, the research. I mean, right. I think, I think a lot yeah, of people no, don't no, realize that, and in every article, every article, they cite the, you yeah. know, the head of the lab, yeah. which makes sense in a way, right. but at the same time, if you want to talk to somebody who can yeah. maybe give you the inside scoop. Yeah. No, no, believe me, I, I realize that you guys are the ones doing the work, um, but it's but it's also, I think it's a little hard because you guys don't have the the track record so it's a little right. harder to find you and then to figure out exactly what you're working on you mm-hmm. know especially if you're early in your career and you haven't published a lot right and how you know how do I know what you're interested in and mm-hmm. and it seems like it's a little more powerful in a in a written piece you know this you know very impressive professor says you know so and so someone's going to read that and say oh they must know what they're talking right about. but you could yeah, say so and so who works in so and so's lab 
Yeah. yeah. Which is... Or even just, you know, if you interview both people, then you can just quote the, the PI and, and maybe just get the facts straight with, like, <laughs> the underling. Yeah. Well, and Something also, like, like, like I said, just screening um, – papers and, and deciding what to cover and right. yeah. getting a perspective on a, on a controversy or, or something like that is is kind of useful even if it doesn't end up in in the person being quoted in the article mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are there are there uh ideas that you started looking into and you sort of realized partway through oh man this is this is not something that i want to get involved in oh yeah all, all the time i mean i can't let's see have i done that recently I don't know if I have a, a a recent example, but yeah, like I mean, probably more than half of the things that I start looking into don't pan out, either because you know it's it's more complicated than I thought. It's not as big a breakthrough as you know the press release made it sound like, mm-hmm. or you know any number of reasons. Um, I'd say that's that's actually more the rule than the exception. So, do you think there's a, a market um, for sort of science? criticism in journalism so a lot of the times when you know these articles are written it's you know that they try to be pretty factual but it's still sort of biased towards what the author is telling you what's in the paper um but then when you get like a critique of the actual paper that's usually on blogs you know maybe a scientist has a blog this and that but you don't really see that in science journalism someone saying you know we looked at this paper and you know they're they didn't have the right controls the placebo Mm -hmm. group wasn't you know they had a strong placebo effect this and that do you think there's a market for if you know you know, we're all scientists, we're all interested in writing and communicating, and I'm sure there are lots of others out there to write these kinds of science articles. I mean, so scientific critiques, but for a more... For a lay audience, audience. yeah, so that you can understand, you know, we we always get like, you know, so enraged, like, oh, this outrageous headline that's, you know, this paper isn't as good, why does it get so much attention, like... So if yeah, I, th- I think it would be great to to sort of deconstruct papers that are already in the prop in, in the popular press. Right. Is that what you're? Is yeah, that yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, if, does, but does that already one... happen? Or not? Well, I don't think it happens you... in the press. So like if mm. if for example, you know, Wired or you know, Time or whatever is going to do an article about, you know, this paper shows that. Oh, so a good example is this paper that came out recently about. Uh, Republicans have no personality. Like they have like really bland personalities compared to Democrats. Study show. Study show. And like all of the, you know, all of the journals like published on this and like, yeah, in your face. But then if you look at the actual paper, like that's not really what it found. And it was very, it was just the paper, the actual paper was a mess. And like the effect size was like, you know, itty bitty, 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 bitty. Mm. And so I, I think if, you know, if 10 journals or, or, or newspaper articles come out saying, you know, this is what they found sort of, just confirming what the author said and if you also have you know another article in time and wire and whatever just saying look if you read the actual paper you know this is what they said they found but that's not really what the paper the, the data doesn't actually mm-hmm. support that mm-hmm. yeah i think well I, I i would disagree a little bit with the fact that nobody does that i mean i feel like at science we did articles mm-hmm. like that where there was a paper that was in the press on the new york times or whatever that was overblown we would sort of Mm-hmm. You know, try mm-hmm. to do a second day story and say, you know, this this paper has been getting a lot of attention, but, you know, a closer look, you know, suggests that it's not all that. Yeah. Um, and also the other place that sort of does a little bit of this is the Night Science Journalism Tracker. Do you guys follow that blog? Mm-hmm. It's, no. No, I heard it's written by journalists, but um, critiquing science. It's science journalists critiquing other science journalism. Science, okay. mm-hmm. Right. But what you're suggesting is scientists critiquing the science that's getting yeah or even i mean even a science journalist right i mean Mm -hmm. i'm sure there are plenty of science journalists who 
you know, can read a paper, yeah. can, you know, are well-versed enough to know if something isn't really up to par. Yeah. Right. But, and I, I'm sure those articles do get written, but maybe they just don't receive the same amount of attention or yeah. it's like, well, I think it must be know. a delicate situation right. too, because you don't want to create enemies artificially by just trying to tell the truth, right? Sure. Yeah. But I don't think that journalists should be afraid of scientists. And I don't think scientists should have that, that mentality that if someone criticizes your work, they're now your enemy. Like mm -hmm. that's right. not right. a good way to... Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I just think that yeah. may happen. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the bigger obstacle, and you sort of alluded to this in your initial question, Erica, of whether there's a market for it, is it's kind of hard to, like, once the, the, the headlines come out, like the overhyped headlines on a new story of cancer, to be the, the publication or the blog or whatever that's always going to be a day late and bitter is going to be <laughs> is, is going to be a little bit of a hard sell. So I think yeah. like that's why we we don't do those stories unless it's really egregious or like I I would my tendency personally anyway would be like I'll I'll do that if if something comes out and it's just getting glowing, you know, overblown uh, press coverage, then I would consider doing a more skeptical piece follow up piece. Yeah. But if it's just like you know a lot of times it's not that egregious. It's like yeah, yeah that headline is a little overblown but you know it's not that yeah bad. i guess i just wish maybe the headlines were mo more toned down and it's not even yeah. just like oh i'm a science snob i think people read those things and it just leads to disappointment because yeah. it's like oh this paper said that you mm -hmm. know this drug is going to cure cancer and then you know five years later well it can kind of help some people sometimes like right. and that's probably what was in the original publication anyway but that's not the story that's being told and so i think it leads to disappointment and distrust in the general population towards science towards you know yeah i think that's true but on the other hand i mean you know t just talking more about it and publishing more articles about the finding doesn't necessarily help sure i guess it just means like i, I just wish people would tone it down and it's probably not gonna happen I mean, one thing that I was I'm curious about is there's there's sort of this um, I've talked to a bunch of people who complain about the fact that there's a this sort of news by like everything has to be new and exciting and like some some big development, some big breakthrough, yeah. which isn't always the way science works. And also just that sort of as journalism is changing and how the way that we consume media is changing, there's such a premium on getting people's attention that that it sort of drives these uh, extreme headlines and i, mm. I guess greg what's your perspective on sort of this changing media and you know how it's how it's changing the way that stories get told is it changing things or not yeah i think it's it's a hard question to answer because i think it's changing the way stories are told in a lot of ways i mean stories are being told in more ways and mm. by more people i mean if you look at just how much writing about science is out there now compared to 10 years ago it's astounding. And we have more scientists writing, you know, have, who have blogs, who are active on Twitter. And I think that's a great thing. And that's a source that really wasn't available 10 years ago, where people could actually follow a scientist who's working in some cutting edge field and get their reaction to developments in, in that field. Like Paul Knopfler's stem cell blog is a great uh, example of that. He's been following this STAP stem cell controversy, this nature paper that came out a few months ago that su suggested, um, you know, a new way to make um, 
stem cells with em, you know embryonic like properties mm -hmm. um that's turning out to be a bust it sounds like but you know mm -hmm. he's chronicled on his blog like blow by blow the efforts to replicate this study and it's it's been a fascinating look into science and i think that kind of thing is is great and it wasn't available before um but i think what, what you're alluding to is is also true that there's more and more competition for attend with all of these outlets that are coming up um there's more and more competition just to get people to click on your mm -hmm. site mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm sort of neither a pessimist nor an optimist about this. I think it's, it's changing and it's changing in good ways and bad. I mean, I'm also another really encouraging thing. I think in addition to more and more scientists being visible and writing more, it are some of the long form science journalism things that have, have popped up, like Matter and Nautilus, and there's 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 others that I'm blanking on. But I think there are more and more outlets for thoughtful writing about science and that's a good thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what is an outlet that you think is doing really good work that maybe a lot of people haven't heard of um well i would i would check out matter it was co-started by by a friend of mine so maybe i'm not entirely unbiased <laughs> but i think they've done some some really interesting pieces longer pieces like of the type that you might see in the new yorker or a, a place like that like they're able to give the space to a writer to really explore some you know some interesting topics in depth mm -hmm. Um, what are the most exciting things that you've sort of discovered or learned in, in this career in, in science writing? My whole career has been about learning new things, and I've gotten yeah. to do some really fascinating things. I mean, I've been to refugee camps in Sri Lanka, chimpanzee sanctuary in Uganda, um, visited labs and interviewed Nobel Prize winners and met a president. And, you know, every day I pick up the phone and talk to really smart people who are on the cutting edge of their field and ask them a lot of dumb questions and <laughs> somehow they mostly manage to indulge me and educate me and so it's been a, a fascinating ride I would say. Something new every day. Yeah yeah it is actually. So last December Randy Sheckman wrote an article in The Guardian where he argued that everyone trying to publish in what he calls the luxury journals so this is science cell and nature uh, actually damages science by changing the in incentives from doing good science to doing sort of sexy, trendy science, and that it results in sloppy science and, and fabrication, basically. So what are your thoughts about this, first of all? Do you think he's correct? So, well, so let me get this straight. So he's saying that these journals, Science, Nature, and Cell, are just so sexy that the scientists <laughs> can't help themselves. They're They're driven to commit acts of sloppiness and fabrication and it's all the journal's fault. So I, I think his argument was a little bit more <laughs> refined than how I presented it maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, basically his idea is that, and so he didn't say it in this article, but um, there was also another article written in Nature by the head of the NIH and he basically had the same argument, but his argument was that the incentives are with the universities. Universities right. are, you know, they really prize if you have a cell paper you know that's better than 10 journal neuroscience papers like and right. that incentive to get that cell paper to get that science paper is hurting science because yeah people i guess what they're both arguing is that you know people want to have a good career they're you know more graduate students more postdocs than there are mm -hmm. faculty positions right. and so it sort of changes the incentive from just doing good, clean science to yeah. getting into these yeah. journals. No, I totally agree. And that's the problem. It's mm -hmm. not, I think he, in the Guardian article at least, 
puts a lot of the blame on the journals. Right. And I'm not saying the journals are blameless, but I think it's the culture that's really the problem and the funding agencies that, you know, use publication in Glamour mags yeah. as a proxy for doing the hard work of assessing someone's contributions to science and mm -hmm. the university hiring committees and tenure committees that do the same. I mean, that's the problem that has to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is this a problem in journalism? I mean, are, are, do journalists put too much weight on the name of the of the journal where where a piece is published? I think it's I think it's really hard not to because you know most journalists. Uh, don't don't have a PhD in in the area that they cover, and so they do put some trust, probably a lot, maybe too much, in the name of the journal, just because they know that those journals are super competitive, mm -hmm. right. and they trust that the peer review process at those journals right. is somehow superior, and you know that that may or may not be true. I mean, I think that's the other thing that that is is a is a crucial issue here that I don't think he raised, but just as is the current state of peer review, I think is pretty woeful. Mm -hmm. It's it's super, super hard, even at a place like Science or Cell, to get people to do, you know, what we all consider their duty to the scientific community and peer review papers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because everybody's too busy trying to get their own paper in right. to those journals. And so, you know, some of the things that have slipped into those journals maybe wouldn't have if people were doing um you know, we're, we're sort of contributing more to peer review. And that's the other problem is that where's the incentive structure for people to do peer review? Mm -hmm. It's not, as far right. as I know, really much of a consideration if you apply for a grant or you're going up for tenure. They, do they ask you how many papers you've peer reviewed or, you know, assess your contribution? In I mean, that's the that's the pillar on which the, the respectability, the credibility of the scientific profession rests. And yeah. yet, it's like an yeah. afterthought and something that nobody really wants to yeah. do. Mm -hmm. So when you were working at Science, did you get a feel for that side of it, for when you know, these research papers are coming in, what the process is like, and how they decide to, to pick papers? Um, you know, very little. The the Science tried very hard, and I think Nature does this too, to keep the, the news and the editorial sides separate. So mm -hmm. those people were on a different floor, and it's not like we couldn't talk to them or anything, but, you know, they didn't discuss their decisions with us by and large, and we didn't discuss ours with them. And mm -hmm. we would report on things like the arsenic uh, paper, the arsenic life paper, um, and the uh, the stem cell cloning paper that was a big debacle. Like, we reported on those mm -hmm. critically, and we didn't have any privileged access to the editors at Science. Like, a reporter calling from Nature would have the same access to the editors who mm -hmm. handled those papers as we did. So they at least tried to maintain a, a sort of firewall. So it, when you, your initial report on the arsenic paper, was that initially critical or was it afterwards when all of this other sort of critiques started to come out? That's that's a really good question. Actually, if the initial one, I think it took, it, it was quick. The reaction to that was quick, but it I don't know if it was quick enough that our very first news story that we did was critical. I'd have to mm -hmm. go back and look. I just don't remember. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But certainly within days, we were doing articles covering the the, critical, the criticism. The, mm -hmm. Well, um, okay, I can lead us off here. Sure. So basically, the way this game works, uh, it's a game we call "Not My Field," um, and uh, it's totally original. And um, basically, we're going to give you the name, the uh, the titles, the headlines of three uh, science journalism articles, which were pretty silly, and two of them are so silly that in fact we just made them up. So you have to figure out which of these headlines. <laughs> They're not necessarily silly. Yeah. <laughs> which of these headlines is a real a real headline? 
Usually we do these with like science papers, research papers. We we have a special edition for you today. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> okay, so number one is thinking too hard can strain your brain. Number two, study reveals babies are stupid. Number three is how Oxford scientists cured autism and why you never heard about it. Oh my God. <laughs> one of these is real. One of these is real. I'll go with, uh, I think it's either one or three. I'll go with thinking too hard can strain your brain. Okay, so um, this is uh, a, a selection from the article in the UK's Daily Mail. Of course. <laughs> the scientific team from the University of Illinois carried out their research on rats. When the rodents had to concentrate on finding their way through a maze, glucose levels in the brain cells connected with orientation dipped by almost a third. In older rats, levels dropped by half, producing a big deficit in performance, and recovery took 30 minutes. But in younger rats, levels fell by only 12% and recovered quickly. Glucose injections boosted the animal's performances. So changes in glucose levels in the rat brain becomes thinking too hard yes. to strain your brain. Congratulations. <laughs> well done. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we should mention, though, that the second one was from The Onion, so we shouldn't take credit for that. <laughs> right. And then I just wanted to Which read this clever. sentence from The Onion because it <laughs> oh, cracked me up. Uh, the study, an 18-month battery of intelligent tests administered over 3,500 babies, concluded categorically that babies are so stupid it's not even funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 2A, bacon gives kids cancer. Is it 2, the cure for cancer could be sitting in your refrigerator, say scientists? Or is it 3... Are sugar substitutes more deadly than arsenic? All right, so I'm going, to read, I'm going to read an excerpt. Quoting from a takedown of the silly headline from Popular Science. The study used a questionnaire to suss out the eating habits of 145 Chinese leukemia patients aged 2 through 20 in southern Taiwan. Researchers suspected a possible link between leukemia and smoked meats. But there is no direct causation borne out by the study. And I'm just going to stop there. Um, so, I'm sorry. The correct uh, answer was bacon gives kids cancer. Sorry, I, I, I don't get your voice on my answering machine. No, unfortunately not. Well, you've got one out of, one out of two oh, I have so one, far. Do I, one more. I've one got more. One more. Okay, so far, okay. better than most of our Yeah, <laughs> so you're doing, you're doing pretty well. All right. So, question three, option A. Cola cleanse. Soda scrubs your insides clean. 3B. Scientists find bad breath makes boring boyfriends. Or three C. Eat nuts, live longer. Oh my god. I'll go with I'll go with three. Eat nuts. You are correct. You yeah. are just on fire. Way to That's go. Awesome. Two for three. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's like too many numbers, but it's basically an article from Time Magazine where it's just like this huge study where they looked at like, you know, 80,000 women or something like that and their eating habits and found that women who eat more nuts uh, were 20 cent, or were 20 percent lower death rates after four years in individuals who did not eat nuts. So wow. my favorite, my favorite, this is from the same article that said eat nuts, live longer. How many nuts does it take to extend lifespan? <laughs> That's not clear. And the scientists say that their findings don't imply any cause and effect relationship between nuts and later death. But the correlation is worth investigating. Oh well, it's, it's further, but I think they're nuts. Oh Very gosh. nicely done, Nick. Thank you. Every All right. Time. So you did two out of three. That's excellent. Yeah, I way to go. I, no one's gotten 100%, so you're in the, the top percent there. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Greg. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been really fun. Yeah, it's been great. And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Rob Malenka, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences here at Stanford. 
Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Forrest Coleman, Nick Weiler, Julia Turan, Jordan Sorokin, Adie, and myself. You can listen to all of our previous episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our other podcast, NeuroTalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org. That's www.neuwritewest.org.